final opportunity this morning to stand in the pulpit and and preach to you all. Preach the Word of God. I've said it many times before, but um, it's a high calling to stand in the pulpit and preach, and I'm I'm thankful that this church has a man that's committed to that. Um, you know, we came to this church four and a half years ago, um, summer of 2017, and at that time, the church had just started meeting in this building, and at that time, we didn't even have enough people to fill half of this conference room. Actually, we, we closed those dividers there, and that was our meeting space, and um, we had many more parking spaces out front than filled ones, and we had no issues with broken chairs, <laughs> I can tell you that. And uh, besides the, the Phillips, Miss Helene and Ricky, I think most, if not all, of the small congregation back then have since moved on. But we, my family and I, we marvel at how God has sovereignly been working in building His church over these last few years. We're incredibly grateful to have been a part of the work here at Grace Bible Church for these last few years as well. Uh, we, we had no intention initially of coming to Florida and joining a church plant, truth be told. We, we checked out a few other churches that we had found using sites like Nine Marks and Gospel Coalition. And, and after visiting a few, we, we felt it right to visit the plant here just to round out our options. And uh, from that point, God, God had plans for us to stay and... Our family started helping and serving in various ways. I uh, remember we were standing in a, in a friend's home, and I approached Brandon about my experience in and willingness to help with music. Started serving in that capacity, and a few months after that, they invited me to be a part of the, the leadership team of the church. And we became formal members of Grace Bible Church when we instituted formal church membership a little over two years ago. And uh, I've, I've just had the immense privilege to serve alongside men who, at the heart of it, desire to care for God's people and to care for them well. Um, we even started the formal elder evaluation and installation process, but ultimately we deferred that just in light of the plans that God revealed for our family to move out of Gainesville. But I, I say all of that... Um, and, and this day is a wonderful example. I, we have a very practical thing that we can see here as the Lord's faithful work in building His church and our call to be committed to the clear expositional preaching of the Word of God being at the center of what we do here at Grace Bible Church. So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us. And we'll get started. Gracious Father, we praise and give thanks to you together on this wonderful Sunday morning of gathering of your people for worship. What a precious time to be with the people of God. I ask that you would guide this time of preaching, that your 
Spirit would use the words of this fallen and sinful but redeemed vessel to instruct and convict and exhort and encourage this congregation for your glory and for the fulfillment of your purposes in our lives and in the life of this church. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy. We'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I've had the privilege of preaching a few times. I think the first time I preached, I preached through the entire chapter of Genesis 6. And that was a very long chapter. And uh, I've come full circle now, and we're only going to go through one verse. So, um, anyhow, I I do hope that you guys are are hungry, hungry for the Word and hungry for lunch afterwards. Um, It could be a long sermon. I I hope it won't be. I'm not known for preaching short sermons. Uh, I think I do hold the record for the longest sermon in this church. Um, but uh, anyways, all joking aside, you know, as I considered what would make, a, make for a fitting farewell sermon to you all this morning, I was immediately drawn to Paul's epistles and particularly to studying how he closed his letters to the various churches and individuals that he pastored and discipled and served with. I think Paul's closings contain his most personal pastoral exhortations, warnings, expressions of personal care and statements of longing for those he shepherded and served with. And if you're like me, normally the closings of the epistles can sometimes be a quick read-through or a skimming on our way to the next letter or book that we're looking to start. The closings of Paul's letters generally are not doctrinally heavy and They're not necessarily intended to teach any new material beyond what he has already said in the letters. However, I believe that his closings give us a look into how Paul himself applies his own teachings in his own life, and in turn, how we can do the same. Like reading genealogies in Scripture, we can be prone to read through these sections in a more cursory or general fashion, and as a result, we miss out on the richness that God has provided for us even in these portions of Scripture. And as Second Peter 1.21 says, these are still words penned by men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And as Second Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so, if we believe those things, then let's study the closing of Paul's letter here to Timothy. And we're going to be in verse 11 for the majority of our time here, but let's just read through, starting in verses 9 through 15, just for context 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 9, he writes to Timothy, Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. 
Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Like I said, this morning we're going to focus just on verse 11. But uh, I think the verse here nestled within the greater context of this letter holds much for us to consider and apply in our lives. I'll just give a brief survey, a brief overview of the book of 2 Timothy, this epistle, this letter that he wrote to, that Paul wrote to Timothy. This is Paul's second and final letter to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, as well as the final letter he would write before his death. Just a few years prior, Paul had written 1 Timothy, and this took place after his first Roman imprisonment, which was under much better conditions, under house arrest. This time, however, Paul is in a prison cell. He's in chains. He's in very filthy conditions, and near the time of his imminent execution during Nero's persecution of Christians in A.D. 67. At the same time, Timothy is pastoring the church at Ephesus. And before we get into verse 11 here, we're just going to take a, a quick overview of this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And we see a few things repeated throughout this letter. In chapters 1 and 2, we can see Paul's unwavering and confident commitment to preach the gospel for which he was called by God to do and to suffer persecution for the sake of the gospel and also his charge to Timothy to do the same. In chapter 1, verse 8, for example, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he says to Timothy, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And in verse 8 of chapter 2, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. In these first two chapters, we also see Paul's charge to Timothy to hold to sound doctrine, in the clear teaching of Scripture, if you look back in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure, the Word of God, which has been entrusted 
to you. And then in chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the heart of the hearers, but be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And then the theme of partnership versus abandonment or opposition in ministry comes out in these first two chapters. If you look in verses 15 through 18 of chapter 1 and verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2, Paul speaks of Vigilus and Hermogenes. And in chapter 2, he speaks of the gangrenous talk of Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who opposed Paul's ministry, opposed the preaching of the gospel, and, and not only that, spoke false truths to the brethren. And so we see this theme of partnership versus abandonment and opposition in ministry. Moving on to chapter 3 here, Paul then speaks of difficult times. He warns Timothy of the last days and the difficult times that will come. And indeed, we are in these last days as well. He speaks of the depravity and the wickedness of men, particularly false teachers. You can see this in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 3. And in response to this, he charges Timothy again in verses 10 through 17 of chapter 3 to hold to the truth. Hold to the truth. And this brings us to chapter 4 of the letter. Paul then charges Timothy one final time to preach and endure hardship in ministry. And we see this in verses 1 through 5. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And in verse 5, But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, Paul speaks of his anticipation of his imminent execution, but this is to usher in his future glory with God. And that then brings us here to the last section of chapter 4, verses 9 through 22, where Paul makes his final requests and warnings and encouragements to Timothy, and this is where we will be this morning. But if we look at the entire letter here, I think Paul charges Timothy with three things, and in turn, he charges the people of God with these three things. These are the charges for the church to hold to in order to fulfill its mission on earth. Number one, he tells us to hold to the truth. Number two, he tells us to preach the word Number three, he says, be willing and ready to suffer for the gospel. Now, how was Timothy to fulfill these charges? And how did Paul himself model this? How did Paul fulfill these charges that he gave to Timothy and to the church? And 
I think we can see here now in in the, the verse that we're going to read, Paul gives three practical instructions that he himself applies in his own life and models through his words for Timothy to follow. And in turn, we'll see that these are things that are ultimately applied and fulfilled through the believer's life in the church. And before we get into more detail here on verse 11, let's just dissect verses 9 through 15 a little bit more. In these verses here, Paul just gets very, very personal with Timothy. He says in verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. Paul here is imploring Timothy to do his best to come to see him in Rome just one more time. And then in verse 10, we see here in the context of Paul's imploring Timothy to come to see him, this is in the backdrop of the desertion of Demas. He says, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And the language that Paul uses here uh, indicates that Demas abandoned him, abandoned him at a very critical time in his ministry. He abandoned him at a very important time of need in his ministry. And not only that, the language here indicates that Demas didn't just abandon Paul, he abandoned the church, he apostatized, and he professed to follow the world instead of following Christ. One commentator put it, he, Demas, had as a believer tasted the powers of the world to come, but he preferred this present evil world, end quote. Following this in verses 10 and verse 12, Paul speaks of other partners in the missions field. He speaks of Crescens in Galatia. He speaks of Titus in Dalmatia or Yugoslavia. And he speaks of Tychicus, who he sent to, uh, to the church in Ephesus. 11, verse 11, Paul says that only Luke is with him in Rome, suggesting that the two of them were both in prison together. And this speaks to a wonderful partnership that we had, and we'll get to this a little bit later in the sermon. Luke is a Gentile believer. And he had faithfully accompanied and partnered with Paul throughout much of his ministry. And we know Luke principally as the author of the Gospel of Luke and the author of the Book of Acts, which were his compilations of the eyewitness accounts of the life of Christ, the establishment of the church, and Paul's missionary journeys. Moving into verse 13, Paul then asks Timothy to bring his cloak and his books and his parchments. And at the time of the writing of this letter, winter was approaching, and it's understandable. Paul was in a cold prison, and we can surmise that he longed for his warm cloak, together with resources that were valuable to him for his ministry. And then finally, in verses 14 and 15, he gives a warning to Timothy to look out for Alexander. You guys may recall... Pastor Brandon, in teaching through the historical context of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church and Paul's evangelistic work in Ephesus in Acts 19, that there were men who worked in making metal idols and shrines to Artemis. 
And when people came to know the Lord through hearing of the gospel, they forsook their idols, and therefore they didn't buy any more of these idols and shrines from these craftsmen, and thereby this seriously damaged their business and their financial livelihood. And Alexander, uh, being described by Paul here as a coppersmith, maybe he was among these craftsmen. And apparently more than simply opposing Paul by... um, just speaking out against Paul himself by slandering him, this man Alexander was also spreading false teaching against the gospel truth that Paul was preaching. And Paul acknowledged that Alexander did much to harm him, and he vigorously opposed his teaching. And yet, uh, Paul trusted the Lord to bring ultimate justice, not simply because of wrongdoing against Paul, but because of sin against God that Alexander would be held accountable. And it's within this series of verses that we come to our key text this morning, which is in verse 11. I'll read it again. Verse 11, he says, Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Now, as I said, I think in this short verse, we see three instructions that Paul himself has applied in his own life and then speaks essentially to model to Timothy to follow. And he gives these three instructions, and we'll go through them together now. The first instruction here is be known in your outline. The first one is be known. He says in verse 11, pick up Mark. Pick up Mark. We see throughout his letters, Paul mentions specific names of individuals. He mentions them in warning. He mentions them in instruction. He mentions them in encouragement. And we see Paul specifically reference individual names in many of his epistles, and particularly in the closings of his epistles, again, highlighting the personal intimacy that he had with the churches and believers that he had been with and who were dear to him. And we can see this in his letters to the Romans, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, and Titus, where he names very specific individuals, particularly in the closing sections of these letters. And it should come as no surprise that Paul knew the names of these people that he ministered to, the people that he cared for, and the people that he partnered with in ministry. And similarly, he knew the individuals that posed the threat to the work of the gospel and who were already working against or opposing the work of the gospel. And we must also remember, too, that Paul's letters were written to specific individuals and churches. He was not merely writing to Christians in general, and therefore his recipients would also have known by name the specific individuals that Paul specifically mentioned. Already in this letter, we see Paul mention several individuals by name. In chapter 1, he mentions his friend Onesiphorus. He gives warning against Phygelus and Hermogenes in chapter 1. He speaks of Hymenaeus and Philetus in chapter 2. And then here in chapter 4, around the verses that we're studying here, he mentions partners, Crescens and Titus and Tychicus, and then he also mentioned Demas, who had deserted him. But here in verse 11, he specifically now mentions Mark. He tells Timothy 
to stop by and pick Mark up along the way to come to Paul in Rome. Paul here was not asking just for a general group of people. He wasn't asking for any particular service or a product from someone he knew. He didn't tell Timothy to prepare an open house for just anyone to come and stop by. And we can be assured that in Paul's final moments here, he was very calculated and he was very specific and intentional in who he wanted to see and who he wanted to be with. And one of those men was Mark. Now, there isn't a tremendous amount of detail in Scripture regarding the relationship of Paul and Mark. Mark was the cousin of Barnabas, and we know Barnabas best as Paul's companion during his first missionary journey. Mark was also a close companion to and likely closely discipled by the Apostle Peter, and he penned the Gospel of Mark, which some have said was Mark's transcribing of Peter's account of in the preaching on the life of Christ. If you guys will turn to Acts 13, we'll get a little bit more context of Paul's relationship with Mark here in Acts 13. Acts 13 here, we see Paul and Barnabas commissioned and sent out by the church at Antioch to go onto the mission field. In verse 4 of 13, we can see here, uh, they were sent to Seleucia, and then Cyprus, and then Salamis. And in verse 5 here, we see it written that they also had John, John Mark, as their helper. This is where we first see the mentioning of Mark with Paul and Barnabas. Later on in the chapter, in chapter 13, they travel to Paphos and to Pamphylia. And in verse 13, we see that in verse 13, Paul and his companions put out to sea, but John, John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, we don't have any details here provided as to what exactly occurred, except that John left and went back to Jerusalem. And we go on here in chapters 13 and 14, and these give the account of the rest of the first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas went on, and this was all before they returned back to Antioch at the end of chapter 14. And getting into chapter 15, we see the account of the Jerusalem Council, which addressed the false teaching that was being taught to the Gentile believers that circumcision was needed to be saved. And we also see them formally recognizing the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, formally recognizing the Gentiles as true believers, having received the gift and promise of the Holy Spirit at salvation through faith in Christ. And then as we get to the end of chapter 15 here, we see Paul and Barnabas preparing for their second missionary journey, and, and here is where we see this rift, starting in verse 37, Barnabas wanted Mark to accompany them, but Paul did not, since in verse 38, it says here, Paul kept insisting that they should not take him, referring to Mark, they should not take him along with them who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. 
And so here we see at a critical time in the journey, Mark essentially bailed on them. It isn't specifically mentioned here what his reasonings were. We don't know if perhaps he missed the comforts of home, that he had some disagreement with Paul, or that he had fear of potential persecution. But regardless, he abandoned them. And we see the result of that in verse 39. There occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, being committed to the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And so here we see that there was conflict between Paul and Mark, but ultimately we also know that there was eventual reconciliation. And some have even said that in contrast to Mark's earlier desertion, here during the first missionary journey, that eventually Mark would be with Paul during his first Roman imprisonment. And we know that ultimately Paul would commend Mark as a fellow worker in the ministry in his letter to the Colossians as well as in Philemon. So it's clear here that Paul knew Mark. Paul had ministered and served with him He cared for Mark's spiritual maturation. He was even hurt by Mark as they served together in ministry. And eventually, they were reconciled and ultimately greatly encouraged by one another, as evidenced later on in Paul's letters in his commendation of Mark to others. And so we see here Paul's request to Timothy to pick up Mark highlights a very special intimacy that exists among the members of the body of Christ. The charge to us, the charge to us here in this church is to dig deeply into our local church. Don't be a no-name, but be known. Don't hang out on the periphery or fringe but be invested in relationships within the local body of Christ and be known by your church. You see, Paul knew his brothers in Christ extremely well, and they experienced a level of intimacy through trials and even conflict and reconciliation. Now, you might be asking, how are we to be known? How are we to be known in our church? I think... Scripture gives us examples of how we are to be known and how we are not to be known. For example, in James 4, James mentions that our selfish pleasures, our lusts and envy, and our selfish motives lead us to quarrels and conflicts. And in verse 11, he speaks of judging and speaking against one another, referring to slander and false accusations and derogatory speech. And this certainly is not the way for us to be known in the body of Christ, But rather, we can look at another example in the book of Acts, Acts 4.32. You can turn there if you would like. We see the example here in the early church of what being known in the church truly looks like. Acts 4, verse 32. It says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him, was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. 
Notice here the close-knit nature of the relationships amongst the brethren in the body of Christ. It says that they were one heart and soul. And they shared amongst what they shared amongst everyone what others could have claimed as personal possessions or personal entitlements. We see here within the body of Christ that there is also the giving of testimonies. The needs, both spiritual and practical, of all in the body were being met through the body itself. In Romans 12, after Paul instructs individual believers to offer their lives as living holy sacrifices to God as their form of worship and to be transformed by the renewing of their mind in order to discern God's perfect will, Paul then turns to the interaction amongst believers. And in verses 10 through 13 of Romans 12, he says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. You see, Scripture is very clear about what can exist between the brethren in the body of Christ if they are simply known by one another. I love what John says to Gaius in 3 John verse 15. He says, be, Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Be known by name. The second instruction that Paul gives to Timothy here, going back to 2 Timothy 4 verse 11, the second instruction here is be useful. Be useful. In verse 11 he says, Mark, for he... Mark is useful to me for service. Mark is useful to me for service. And here we see a contrast between Demas in verse 10 and Mark in verse 11. Demas deserted Paul and was not useful. Mark, on the other hand, was useful. This Greek word used for useful can also be translated profitable, serviceable, or helpful. Paul uses this same term in both the affirmative and the negative when he's describing Onesimus to Philemon. In Philemon 11, he says, Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And then Paul says he's useful to me for service. The Greek word here is diakonia. This is the word from which we get the word deacon. And it specifically refers to service in ministry. Service in ministry. And I love how the New Living Translation translates this verse. It says, Bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. Helpful to me in my ministry. Paul here highlights the role of Mark's Gifting not merely for Mark's own good, but 
in the context of the church. You see, Mark's role in his gifting, his use was to elevate and enhance and support the ministry of others and in turn the mission of the church. Paul did not merely value Mark because he had a unique skill that others didn't have. He wasn't trying to use Mark for his own selfish gain. He was not intending to give Mark a platform so that Mark would feel elevated or special. Paul's value for Mark was as a fellow servant whose service would enhance Paul's work in the common cause of Christ and the spread of the gospel. Now, could we potentially understand on a more practical level why Mark may have been useful in this particular setting for Paul being imprisoned in Rome? Well, scholars believe that the gospel of Mark was penned specifically to Roman believers, and thereby it raises the likelihood that Rome and its Gentile people were a target region and a target people group for Mark's ministry himself. And these obviously then would have complemented Paul's ministry greatly. The charge to us here is to serve intentionally and purposefully both within and for the body of Christ, to be useful. We must understand the subtle distinction here between serving in a personally recognized capacity versus serving within the purposes and needs of the church. I like what Tim Challies says. He says, quote, The captain of a great steamship may have called for full speed ahead, but he himself was powerless to actually make it happen. It was the men below decks, the men in the engine room, who had to shovel the coal into the boilers and provoke the ship to greater and greater speeds. The captain may have been given a posh cabin and may have worn a handsome uniform and may have been treated with great pomp, but it was those when unseen who propelled the ship forward and gave it its power. His success was inseparable from their labor. End quote. Turn with me just briefly to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. First Corinthians 14, starting here in verse 6, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones... How will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, but, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. We'll stop right there. Now, this passage here discusses the use of the gift of tongues, or the gift of languages, and the gift of prophecy, or the 
receiving and delivery of God's messages to his people, and both were gifts of the Holy Spirit that were bestowed on believers and in particular to the apostles to verify and provide authority in what was taught and done in the early church. And our referencing here and looking at this passage here is not for the purposes of discussing the sign gifts or the miraculous gifts or cessationist viewpoints or continuationist viewpoints, but the point here is to understand the historical context is that Paul was writing to a church that was confused and mistaken about the use and application of individual spiritual gifts in the church. Paul's main point here was that members possessing the gift of tongues may bless and give praise to God using their gift, and yet, without interpretation of that language, the church would be left without understanding of what was spoken and therefore unedified. You see, it was not sufficient for one to simply use their gifts in the presence of others. The element that was missing was the edification of the church. And the verb here to edify is, obviously, it's the same, same uh, root word where we get the word edifice or building. And the idea here is the building up or the constructing of a physical building. And it also carries the idea of emboldening or to make bold or to make courageous. And you see, the use of our gifts and service in the context of the church is for the edification of others and ultimately for the building up of the church. And Paul refers to the church as the body of Christ just a couple of chapters back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And the works of service and the gifts of the church are to be used, as Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4 verse 12, they're to be used to build up this body. It's not for the sole purpose Uh, Using gifts, again, is not for the sole purpose of building up the individual. The important thing for us to see here is that we are not merely built up when we use our gifts. We are actually more effectively built up when others use their gifts to edify us. Later on in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul even gives the instructions here that for those who can speak in tongues or languages, he says in verse 28, If there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Paul here contextually gave this instruction to maintain both order and edification as the top priorities of spiritual gifts within the church, and specifically as it pertained to the use of these outward sign or miraculous gifts in the early church. But the The principle here of order and edification carries over to the purpose and intent of all spiritual gifts in the church for the building up of the body and to maintain an orderly use of the gifts within the body. Warren Wearsby says of this passage here in 1 Corinthians, he says, the private use of spiritual gifts may edify the user, but it will not edify the church. And Paul admonished us to excel to the edifying of the church. I love the example in Exodus 36. You don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 36, it says, Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab, and every skillful person in whom the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him to come to the work to perform it. They received from Moses all the contributions which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work in the construction of the sanctuary, 
and they still continued bringing to them freewill offerings every morning. And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he had been performing, and said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp saying, let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. And thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. Now we can read about the contributions, the materials that they were bringing one chapter before in Exodus 35. And what we see here is the physical contribution of possessions and materials for the building of the tabernacle. And the Israelites were serving here through giving. The Israelites served through giving to edify those who were gifted and called in the work of constructing the tabernacle, as well as for the physical building of the tabernacle itself. And they gave so much and so lavishly that Moses had to command them to stop giving. Let me ask you the question, are you lavishly serving and caring and using your gifts to enable and support those in the church to serve and to grow in their spiritual maturity? Are we considering specific needs, the works of service of others, and considering how God has gifted and enabled us in this current season of our lives to edify these individuals and to meet these needs? The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 10, verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Ephesians 4, verse 11, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And Paul writes to Titus in Titus 3, Verse 14, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. John writes in 1 John 3, verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Burke Parsons puts it very nicely. He says, quote, although not every Christian is called to be a pastor, every Christian is called to serve the Lord and his church with the gifts he has given them, end quote. And so be known, be useful, and number three, be united. Be united. Going back here to 2 Timothy verse 11, In chapter 4, Paul writes, Pick up Mark and bring him with you. Bring him with you. Paul's hope here was that Timothy and Mark would be physically together in coming to him and united physically with him, Paul and Luke, in Rome. And I think here we see unity displayed in two ways. We see unity displayed across geographical distance, and we see unity amongst relationships. Paul's missionary journeys took him from the eastern shores of Israel to western Italy and Rome, where he was eventually executed, and the sheer physical distance was immense 
and particularly at that period of history where traveling was done principally by foot and sailing, he covered great distances in his missionary work. And as a result, there was widespread evangelization of Jews and especially of Gentiles throughout the regions and the establishment and planting of many churches that would then give rise to other church plants. And over his years of ministry, he would not only develop but also maintain numerous relationships with churches and fellow believers and ministry partners and supporters. And we see this exemplified very early on in his missionary work back in Acts 15, verse 36, for example, where Paul says to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Paul routinely made the rounds to maintain his ministry partnerships, to continue to encourage the brethren over such immense distances. You see, he maintained and preserved the unity within the body of Christ, even over large geographical distance. Moreover, I think we see unity in relationships displayed here. I think it's a a beautiful picture here in 2 Timothy 4. We see three different kinds of relationships that Paul had with the men that are mentioned. We see the relationship of companionship in his faithful physical companion of Luke who journeyed and suffered together even in prison with Paul for the gospel. We see the relationship of discipleship, a father to a son between Paul and Timothy. And finally, we see the relationship of partnership, ministry partners, together with Paul and Mark. This relationship being challenged at times by conflict and disagreement and yet ultimately reconciled for the cause of Christ. It's through these types of relationships in the church, both locally and broadly over vast geographical distances, that unity is built and preserved. And why why is this unity so crucial in the fulfillment of the charges of holding to sound doctrine and preaching the word and being, being willing to suffer for the cause of Christ? Why is unity so crucial? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, he says in verse 8 of Ephesians 3, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for all ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. You see, unity in the church is critical to our purpose as the church in demonstrating the manifold wisdom of God. I think Paul further understood the importance of unity in the church as our earthly unity also reflects the unity among all the redeemed from all tribes, tongues, and nations for all eternity. He says 
in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, in other words, the church, the chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Unity for the sake of proclaiming the gospel truth as God's manifestation of his wisdom and unity for the sake of looking to eternity where we will be united with Christ and with one another in eternal glory. We sing the song, The Glories of Calvary. The second verse says, Sinners find eternal joy in the triumph of your wounds. By our Savior's crimson flow, holy wrath has been removed. And this is the line here. And your saints above, join with your saints below the church, rejoicing in the risen Lamb. The charge, the mission for each of us as followers of Christ and as his church are the same as what Paul charged Timothy with, to hold to sound doctrine and teaching, to faithfully preach the word of God, and to be willing to endure suffering and persecution for the cause of Christ. And how can we help each other to follow and obey and fulfill these charges? As we've seen here this morning, as the Apostle Paul models for us, we are to be known we're to be in deep, caring, connected relationships with one another in the body of Christ. We must be useful, using our gifts and our means and opportunities, not merely for our own encouragement, but for the edification of the body of Christ. And finally, we must be united, building and strengthening ministry relationships both locally here in our local congregation as well as broadly as we seek to fulfill God's purposes together. Now, I want to just take a moment now in closing to speak to those among us or who may be listening who do not know or profess Christ as their Lord and Savior. What we have studied this morning from the Word of God, being known, being useful, and being united, these have their relevance and their importance and their value in the context of the life of the Christian in the church. It may come across as harsh to say it this way, but Christianity is exclusive. Christianity is exclusive. You see, God's people have been set aside, set apart. It says, we are a royal priesthood. We are not to be like or to be of the world, and as Christians, we have been brought into the family of God. We have been made heirs with Christ, Romans 8. We have been made members of his body, Corinthians 4, uh, 1 Corinthians 12. We're part of the body of Christ, the church. No human or secular institution, no human interaction, no job or co-worker group, no interest group, no organization or charity, no social or political initiative, though perhaps good in and of themselves, can provide the blessings, the fulfillment, and the joy that God has bestowed on his people 
through the church, and ultimately through salvation in Christ. If you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, our prayer here is that you would seek Him. Recognize that you are a sinner, for we have all sinned and fallen short of God's perfect and holy standard. And we deserve God's wrath and judgment, and yet God in His great mercy and grace has reconciled us through His Son, who was sent to die on the cross. In Christ, we have been imputed with his righteousness, and we have been made heirs. We have been forgiven. We have been cleansed from our iniquities. If you do not know Christ, then the things we have spoken of here this morning in the context of the church, the bond in Christ, the unity in faith, the fellowship of the saints, unfortunately, these do not apply to you. But Christ invites you to know him and to trust and believe in his saving work on behalf of sinners. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word, which instructs us in how we are to live as the body of Christ. We thank you for the Apostle Paul who we can imitate in his character and conduct as he imitated you. Would you convict and encourage and equip your people this morning to be known, to be useful, to be united in the body of Christ so that we can more effectively fulfill your charge to hold to the truth, to preach the word, and to be willing to endure hardship and suffering for the cause of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name.